This is Diaspora for the Culture. I'm your host, Jack, and the founder of this collective. All of the individuals you'll hear speaking today are connected through their relationship with me. A few of them are barely acquainted, and most of them have never met before the start of this recording. For the very first episode of the Diaspora for the Culture podcast, I sought out to bring together an eclectic and diverse collection of my friends, colleagues, mentors, and mentees for them to share their unique diaspora dip, aka definition, identity, and purpose. First, we'll get into some intros. The first speaker is Sula Graham. She is a blacktivist, educator, entrepreneur, and overall superstar from the UK. Sula and I met through work in 2021, where she served as a catalyst for major change at an incredibly toxic, racist, and oppressive operation. I only had the pleasure of working with her for about 45 days, but her impact on me and definitely on the company was beyond profound. Prevention, I've done all sorts of child protection, cultural diversity, anti-racism. So I've taught all of that. And then I became a senior leader and a teaching consultant. I then worked in South Korea for two years in an English school, tried to do cultural diversity there, but racism there is just on another level. So that didn't work out. But it was an incredible experience at the same time. And then I came back three years ago and I now have my own consultancy firm. I go into schools and corporations and do diversity and inclusion, anti-racism, mental health and well-being. And I run a community organisation called Holler that goes in and uh, we provide inspirational people of colour to do talks in schools. And we teach a positive black education unit, which is all after, you know, before slavery, real black education to kids in schools. So that's me. Hi, everyone. Hi, my Hi. name is Kazim Timitope Adereju, right? Um, I was born in Nigeria, right, back in 1994. Um, uh, basically raised all, and uh, when I came here, came to, to, to the U.S. Uh, when I was four, I was ra basically raised in Tampa, Florida my whole life. Um, I went to school here, uh, graduated from Florida Agriculture Mechanical University for pharmacy school. Uh, look, graduated literally just last year too, and I'm very happy for that. Wow, congrats! Yeah. Um, right now, I'm just studying for my board exams and whatnot, and traveling the world. You know, well, got to travel way before you know starting work, because like once I start work, you know, it's just <laughs> just nothing but work. You know, <laughs> but yeah. So I mean, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to you know live life and experience next thing yeah yeah thanks for being mm -hmm. my name is alfonso i am a political historian and activist i uh, studied international politics all throughout my teens um i did model un and it got me so passionately into politics and the geopolitical spectrum and how we view blackness and and how our history uh, impacts, uh, you know, culture and, and everything in the uh, socioeconomic uh, realm today. Um, so I've been doing that, like I said, since I was 15. I'm 29 now. So I have, I have a lot of experience um, debating and communicating uh, and articulating our viewpoints and how we as a diaspora need to uh, function in this world. Um, and I've also helped 
the Democrats get onto uh, office. So I've helped Tom Wolf, our current governor in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, I should probably say that too. I'm also from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, I've helped the governor win, um, win this race here in 2014. Um, I've helped a couple people uh, get into office, like Larry Krasner, who is our current DA. Uh, he's a progressive. And I've been doing everything I can to help returning citizens for the last five years um, to at least get established, get jobs, find living. So, yeah, it's been it's been a struggle, but I, I, I love what I do. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's that's about all I can share for now. I will, and I will tell more as we go. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Leah Bonilla. I'm from Los Angeles. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Jackie through some friends <laughs> in Tampa <laughs> while I was um, studying at the University of South Florida. Um, I'm currently an independent contractor um, psychologist providing telehealth services. Um, my discipline is school psychology, so I've worked in the schools for probably over 10 years. and. My emphasis is school-based mental health. So while I was in the schools, my main focus is we're doing psychological assessments, providing um, academic assessments for kids who may be having learning disabilities, as well as providing mental health services, um, therapy services, things like that um, to the students. Um, my dissertation was on looking at associations between race, ethnic identity, gender and symptoms of depression amongst middle school students. Um, I'm really, really interested in the adolescent population, particularly um, that age group where identity is forming and, you know, you're really, really in the thick of it, not just with what's going on with forming your identity, but just your whole biological puberty and things like that. So really, really interested in that population. Um, I'm really, really excited to be here um, and talk about some of the important things that are just important to continue to discuss and keep the discourse going. Um, I also am currently um, the owner of Bonilla Behavioral Health P LLC. Um, it's <laughs> definitely hey. um, exciting hey. for me to um, have my own business and be able to do um, the, the work that I do. Um, and I'm just really, really excited to be here. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever time it is for everybody. My name is Trayvon Smith. I go by Trey, and I'm the founder of Realist Exposure. Um, and I also concurrently take care of my um, autistic uh, ch child, sister during the day. Um, and that's a little bit of what I do during the day. Realist Exposure is a photography service on the forefront, social enterprise on the back end, so we can talk about social justice topics and host space for artists on our social media platforms coming soon. Thank you for having us. In this episode, you'll also hear from Vanel and Courtney, two of my very best friends. Vanel, since we were 14 and 15, we both grew up in South Florida, a melting pot of cultures and ethnicities from across the diaspora. She is a daughter of immigrants and a successful real estate professional with over 10 years of experience. Courtney, who is not only one of my best friends, but also my insanely talented esthetician, makeup artist, brow girl, etc., who owns her own business here in Tampa, Florida, called Courtney Sequoia Artistry.
the diaspora for the culture is a culturally collective conscious, a culturally conscious collective. Um, we're curating conversations by and for the African diaspora. Um, episode one, my identity and purpose. Um, we talked about having two to three minutes each segment per person um, to provide our answers. And so at this point, we'll jump right into definition. We'll talk about identity and then our purpose. Um, we already chose our buzzer names and um, I will start. So the literal definition of a diaspora comes from um, a Latin or Greek word. Um, it originally means scattering. Um, originally it was applied to describe the Jewish diaspora from their, uh, I guess their homeland. I don't know the history there, I won't go into it. Um, it was not part of my purpose to research that. Um, but today we apply it to other populations of ethnic groups um, like ours, the African diaspora. There's also the Asian diaspora and so on and so forth. But of course, today our focus is the African diaspora. So. Um, our, my question to you all is, what does the African diaspora mean to you? When I use the term, I'm speaking about Black people all over the world. Um, as an African-American with Puerto Rican roots, I tend to be speaking predominantly about the people in the Americas and Caribbean who are descendants of slavery, but we're not alone. We have brothers and sisters on the continent. We have those who live in Europe and Asia, um, those who maybe don't know that they're Black. Um, we can talk about that for a second, the Black Asian people in the remote islands in the Pacific, but what I really mean is all of us who want to and can trace our origins, our ancestry to the motherland. Um, what I'm not talking about is uh, the white woman who took a 23andMe test and found out she's 4% Congolese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, when we talk about uh, descendants of slavery, we know all of us that there were people brought to the Caribbean islands, to the Americas in varying degrees. And um, we'll get to learn more about that as we talk about our identities. But basically, I just mean, I mean Black. Like we have a shared experience across the world, like I talked about in our intros, um, that kinds of bonds us in struggle um, in the fight against white supremacy. Because unfortunately, white supremacy basically means that the exact opposite of white they've you know created this light versus dark good and evil we are at the bottom we are the people who are experiencing um you know the deepest effects of white supremacy um so the diaspora to me um you I mean you put it you summarize it pretty well um but yeah, it's something that connects all of us is the struggle of white supremacy and what we've all gone through, through anti-blackness. Um, but it, it also includes the, you know, and and I say this with, with as much love as possible, um, but we have a lot of people within the diaspora who are, who do not tend to, uh, you know, share, any solidarity in that struggle with us. So I feel um, a, I would say attachment and a, and a compart compartment to the diaspora, um, especially as we, as, as someone who's grown up in the United States and Philadelphia specifically as a Puerto Rican and black kid, it is, uh, it is quite the unique experience to ever, you know, like when you're young, you don't really like even, you don't, even, you don't know what to call yourself. And then as you get older, you start to identify with your roots. 
um, which was, which is also comes with the price, comes with uh, a lot of, you know, negative looks towards you. Because the more proud you are of it, you know, to say you're a part of the, the diaspora, the more hate you tend to notice. Um, yeah, um, that, to, for me, the diaspora is is a struggle that connects us and divides us at the same time. So um, I agree with both of you guys, you know, on your takes on what the diaspora is. I have similar um, meanings. For me, it means African culture and just melanin um, in general, um, as well as just like I think of a grand reach, you know, just across the world, you know. And it also means just communities of different people around the world with fundamental similarities and African ancestry. Um, I really, really think about ancestry when I think about the diaspora. Um, it's a testament to resilience and um, adaptation, um, but I also think of trauma and identity crisis, um, kind of like that dark side, you know, um, that kind of comes with um, that resilience and adaptation, you know, um, the enslavement of our ancestors, um, how far we've come and if we're honoring them. Yeah, when I think of the diaspora, I just think of greatness. I think of how incredible we are, what a resilient people we are. Um, we're so, uh, there's such a breadth to us. Um, we come in all forms, shapes and sizes, and we have so much in common, but we are so different. And what I want people to wake up and understand is how different we are as a people. We are an incredible people, but we aren't all this one thing that everyone puts us in a box in. I am of, you know, mixed race or dual heritage, or I know you have different terms in in um, in America, but I'm half uh, white, half Jamaican. But I, I grew up knowing I was black. I was taught I was black identify as mixed race but I was like you are black people view you as black the world views you as black racists view you as black if someone's being racist they're not going to say oh you're a little bit black so I'll be less racist to you um so that's what I grew up and I, my white mum lucky enough taught me about my black history so I was very blessed and I know that's not common within dual heritage families um but I I think of I think of our struggle and I think of our trauma but I just think of our greatness we are an incredible people to still be here and survived hell basically no other group on this planet has gone through what we have and the fact we're still fighting and still going through it and still doing this i just greatness comes to mind the underlining word that i'm hearing from um you know sula and leah right is resilience right yeah. and resilience is for sure a thing you within the african diaspora um you know i can only talk about you know my my story where you know I was I'm basically an immigrant from Nigeria you know came over to the U.S. right in in Nigeria there's people who who don't necessarily get to travel abroad to like the countries they want you know either that's you know western countries like the U.S. you know like the U.K. whatnot you know then they tend to go out to like other countries like you know china right you know china what what do they know in china right you know nigeria is like the third largest english-speaking country in the world so like when they go to a place yep. like china and like they trying to like learn a whole new language right you know just shows the resilience and like 
you know, black people. Like, it doesn't matter if you're like in the US trying to, you know, you know, uphold a certain standard of what black blackness is, right? Or, you know, you're in like rural uh, areas of Africa or like, you know, Nigeria and China, right? We all have that same sense of being, you know, strong or quickly to overcome like an obstacle, you know, either language or or any type of barriers. But yes, resilience is what I think when I think of the African diaspora. So when I think of the African diaspora, it's just I think of many different intersections. I think of uh, the roots of slavery. I think of so many different countries on where we were spread out to be. I think of where we're at today with like just so many different cultures and so many different um, so many different variations of of um, so many variations of like black people. And I can't really describe it off the top of my head in a good form, but all I know is for me, I identify with um, being Creole and black. Um, and my family comes from the South. They come from Louisiana, Arcadia, Shreveport and all those places. Um, and I, that's where I kind of identify with, but you know, um, resilience is definitely one thing. I, I definitely find it in our DNA from everybody that I meet and then wherever I'm at. It's like more so like, you know, we both have the same sense that we're not gonna let nobody do anything to us because of the color of our skin. Well, my diaspora unfortunately has been affected by my parents' divorce. My mom was very orthodox. She did not want to deal with Haitian, like her experience in Haiti and everything like that, unfortunately. Just because it's been, unfortunately, once I've actually talked to her, it's been negative, a lot of negativity. So she likes to block a lot of that out. My dad was for the food, for the music, for the TV. Like he was the reason I knew Asian Creole at all, period, to, to this day. Um, because my mom was so against it. He is he built a mansion in Haiti to go back to his homeland. He came to America to make his dream come true, to go back to Haiti and make his dream come true in Haiti. He did not want to stay in America at all. So the different aspects between my parents unfortunately really had an impact on how I identified as Haitian and then you had the Haitian American but then you had African American there's never really a, a form that says Haitian American or any American besides African American specifically so that's something you had to identify with very early on and my parents went from Brooklyn New York from up until I was nine to Boca Raton, Florida. Um, so it was a lot of different changes in my this everything. You know, South Florida has a lot of different cultures besides Black American, Haitian American, Cuban, Venezuelan. There's a lot of different cultures. So it was enlightening and it was different for me. Um, and I loved every moment of it. But my mom specifically, unfortunately, really suppressed a lot of it for me. And college was when I really got the opportunity to start to open up and start to really explore what that looked like for me, besides just Haitian American, African American, and everything else. So it was a good experience for me. And it's something that I'm just kind of being very new to um, and exploring at the moment. So um, when I think of the African diaspora and what it means to me, um, I am a Black woman in the beauty industry. And this, you know, the beauty standards and trying to navigate 
that that world um, and be true mm. to my blackness and call things out when I see them. You know, a lot of things have changed in the last five years with like um, Fenty um, coming and, and, you know, saying that there needs to be more um, inclusive, inclusive colors. And I think it's important that um, in my industry, I, I figure out, you know, how black I have to be, you know, sometimes because um, I, I don't feel very comfortable in certain spaces. I don't feel like there's a safe space to speak on some issues about blackness or if it's fair in my industry and things like that. So I tend to gravitate to safer black spaces. Um, and yeah, I feel like black people, I feel like that, I feel like we're very adaptable. Mm. Um, I feel like we have to adapt because a lot of things are not for us, like how the makeup shades and, and things like that, a lot of things were not for us. So we have to become adaptable. And um, I remember listening to, I believe, Naomi Campbell talk about how her, her shades were never right um, for some of her um, fashion moments. And, um, you know, to be so high up and to be affected in that way, because, you know, we just are not considered, you know, we're just not, we, we haven't been considered for a long time. Um, so. I mean, I, 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 yes, that's what the astro means to me. I feel like we have to be very adaptable and, you know, deal with what we have. So some things that stuck out to me and, and how I want to respond, um, one, beauty standards and inclusivity. Um, I heard food and I heard diversity. And I think all of those things definitely connect us across the diaspora. Something else that I feel does is like music. Um, there's a, like a, not a joke, but like a, a funny from online where like they say the sounds of the diaspora and they show like, you know, drum and beat sounds that are traditional in Jamaica and traditional in um, Haiti. And it's the, the funniest, like, you know, that's the diaspora talking to each other. Cause obviously, you know, like in Africa, there is a huge continent like it's so diverse and to your point Sula like even all of us who are descendants of slaves and we're dispersed from the motherland we're all diverse you know one thing about being black is that you do kind of get put into a bucket based on how other people see you you know um I work for a black owned company what I do is very black focused and you know something that we I hear a lot and and in people's story is like <laughs> you know, I'm in a, a setting where people assume that I feel one type of way or that I have this type of view because I'm black. But the truth is that that's, that's not fair. I'm my own person. I have my own experiences. Everyone in this room is, is really diverse. Um, the different foods that we eat, that we grew up eating, that um, we like. I mean, um, just looking at all of your faces, I know like we, we're so beautiful and diverse as a a people and I really just I love that about us and for me that's like the beauty in our diaspora but at the same time I know there's a lot of pain um that comes with some of those contexts because you know the things that we see in the media the things that are perpetuated towards us like we have to teach ourselves I was having this conversation last night we have to teach our you know our children coming up after us that you are beautiful despite what they're telling you you know in the world despite the messages you might be hearing you're beautiful you deserve you belong like we're sometimes experiencing things like imposter syndrome and all that as a result of things that 
are outside of our control. So um, that's that, that's just my response. I, I didn't say WIPA, but I meant to. Mm. Um, everybody has, you know, a, a, a bit more time to just contribute to the conversation um, in, in different ways. I know like some things that came up for me, like I said, were food. Um, so I'm not sure if there was a conversation one thing that came up for me just it's a silly little thing and it made me think about beauty standards i don't know if you have it in the uk in the us we only just recently got plasters that were the set that were of different colors to our skin so it's just the little things and it made me think about where they just don't provide for us we are not provided they take from us but they don't provide for us and it's the simplest little thing my um, niece is a foot female football coach or soccer coach and she, I was just at her house the other day and I needed a plaster. And she took out this bag of plasters that had about four or five different shades. And it actually made me emotional because in all of my 38 years of life, I've never ever seen it. And it's just something you take for granted. We just have to adapt. We have to be like, okay, it's just what this is. But to have like something that represents you way too late, but that's how much we haven't been represented. That something as small as something that is the color of my skin that matches me, it was like, quite emotional for me and a big deal because I've never had it. So I don't know, that just came up when we were talking about beauty standards. I know plasters and beauty aren't the same thing, but you know what I mean? Yeah, that's funny. We call it foundation. I've never heard the word plaster to describe foundation, so. Oh no, sorry. I mean like an actual Band-Aid plaster, sorry. Oh. <laughs> it's gonna take you guys a while with my translations. Like, sorry, like she pulled out, a, you know, like do you call them a Band-Aid when you get cut your finger? Mm -hmm. yeah, we've never had band-aids the color of our skin they've always just been for you know white and they've only just recently in the uk brought out different colored shades of band-aids that match the color of your skin yeah so, and it's i don't so, know if they have them in the u.s it's so frustrating too because you know i'm someone who like i remember i had a, a wound in my arm for like such a long time and i like tried to cover it with makeup because it's like this bright beige color that just kind of stands mm -hmm. out makes you feel self-conscious like everyone's mm -hmm. you know looking at your cut so it's the small things that really are actually a, a big deal. And, mm -hmm. and because we're an afterthought, it's not considered. One thing that came up for me was, I don't know why, but it's just that trauma in the dark side. Um, I've had um, clients who um, have been of mixed race and just are just in such identity crisis because they're not white enough or they're not black enough or they're too black or they're too white you know and then i've also just had um african-american clients who just don't feel empowered just because of their skin color you know and then girls that feel like they have to um always straighten their hair because it's not pretty any other way you know and these are like i said children i've worked with kids you know these are our middle schoolers these are our high schoolers this is our youth um, and it just has a significant impact on just the way you see yourself and how you feel about yourself, you know, and I really think that it's important to make sure that even though we may feel like, you know, that dark side, we may feel like we're struggling, we have to remember what Jackie said, you know, we are powerful, we are beautiful, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we have to like kind of tell ourselves and teach ourselves those things daily and constantly affirm ourselves because if we don't, no one will. Yeah, it's extra work, but it's mandatory, mm -hmm. especially for the kids.
We got to teach them to love themselves. I have a comment about that. I am so tired of people um, who want to comment on the way that I dress, the way that I move, the way that I date, mm. and the way that I interact with other people. Because growing up, there's a lot of people who are saying like, oh, you're white, you can't be black. I grew up with so many different variations of black you can't even describe it you know what i mean and it's funny how people will judge you off of a phenotype or based off of like just how you look on face value you don't know where none of the shoes that you walk in none of the the pain the struggle the burden and i don't want to call it a burden because i love being black but the the burden that everybody else carries because we're black you know what i mean it's really interesting to see I've had so many people comment on the way that I dress at work. Mind you, I have my pants tailored and everything in a professional way. You look like you're wearing pajamas. Excuse me, I don't look at anything that you have on. Don't comment. Don't mm -hmm. comment. Don't comment on how I keep my hair. My hair is none of your business, none of your concern. So that's all I have to say. Let's not, let's not, let's not um, comment on black people in professional environments. I feel like, I feel like a lot of, um, you know, palm colored people love to talk, tell us what to wear and how we should do stuff. But you know, they're trying to also take our look at the same time so what resonated with me is the uh whether or not you're black enough um <laughs> i have had so many conversations where as i'm trying to educate our brothers and sisters i get the you're not even black you barely black or you need you not dark enough to comment on different different things that we have to go through as black people and let me tell you um you know i in my experience, I have grown up in the projects in West Philadelphia. My grandmother's still there <laughs> trying to get her out. Um, I've lost family members to police unjustly. And I've, you know, myself has been, I've been arrested and convicted unjustly. Um, you know, so when, when we talk about whether or not people are black enough, right, but we still share in this experience. Because being a black and Puerto Rican kid, I don't, like, I have, I look Puerto Rican, uh, like, from, you know, if you were to see me from far away. But then when you look up close, my face, my facial features, my hands, everything is just what people would describe as black. And, you know, it's, uh, I tell you, it's one of the, one of the things I struggle with. Um, because it's almost as if we have to convince people that we're part of the diaspora. And even bringing up the diaspora seems to be controversial these days because you know you got you got the the sectionalities of of different types of people who have the different beliefs and you know uh you know especially when you know we we're talking about the diaspora and jackie you said something about you know it was represented with jewish people um you know you're you're absolutely right in that and the fact is is that there are black jewish people out there so there is a complete diaspora of judaism yeah. um that we also need to use that word to convert it to our people like when you talk about skin color culture all that all that stuff and we're all part of it but education is key there and uh -huh. telling people whether or not you're black enough or you don't share them the experience is like hey i i know i share the experience pretty pretty much more than a lot of people in this in the united states you know having having felt lost and all that stuff to white supremacy and the systems that that be so i you know as much as it's a struggle i still do it and i still proudly represent and love my black people as much as i can you talked about um 
like the systems in place that are you know trying to keep us down and we're going to get into identity and how that you know affects like the like kind of separating us like they 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 do a good job right they do a good job of making us feel like outsiders but then we in, in turn internalize that and end up you know othering the people part of our community. And that's something that, you know, I've largely been affected by. Um, and to uh, Alfonso's point, those systems that are in place, they don't care how light skin you are. They don't care how dark skin you are. Yes, it you're treated differently. And, and colorism is a, a very big problem in our community. But what we don't need to do is continue to perpetuate that internally. Like you guys said, you know, it's, it's not it's not even just about like physical like how like features right um because even like me with like the darker tone like i i i believe like you know i'm i've been called that i've been darker than most other african americans out there right um there's still a sense of like oh not sense of being like oh you're not black enough to where like okay hey you sound you sound white so then therefore you are like white on the inside and black on the outside you know and so you know it just there's a whole sense of like tribalism you know and that this it goes down on a whole new other rabbit hole with you know african tribalism and and whatnot there's one thing about um black people here in the u.s right they still bring on that african tribalism that's brought on you know ancestral on um, the ancestral days back in the the motherland and whatnot you know but africa has a big problem with you know tribalism and you know looking at each other oh he's from this tribe you know so he's not this right so like that sense of tribalism is still brought on over here you know saying like oh you know he's not dark enough you know he's not you know he doesn't speak slang enough or you know he doesn't act this type of way so yeah it's it's very it's very um it's in us for sure now the thing is like we need to actively think like hey you know this is something that's actually holding us back you know tribalism okay i i guess got us one way or if if it ever did help us in anything because it just seems like pure divide just pure dividing us you know it's 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 outdated you know tribalism is outdated and you know we should be cognizant of that as black folks you know tribalism is is i, I don't know how, i would say it's archaic for sure um and i do think it, it definitely exists here but tribalism is still fairly new if you talk about our our overall history um and it's been used against us obviously but yeah it's it's a problem <laughs> people looking at how black someone is or isn't and i've definitely faced that myself being mixed race um again like we said when the police pull you over in the uk exactly the same as america if police had the gun if police had guns in the uk we would have as many people dead and actually what they don't tell you is that black people die in police custody all of the time so we're mm -hmm. smaller but if we were of your size with guns i want to make it very aware to people that the uk is not different the racism is as bad people are dying if you were to do you know percentage wise as much we have a this country we could listen the british empire created racism so we just do it better here because we have people thinking it's not a problem 
Um, but I want to say, you know, like if the police pull you over, at no point are they saying, oh, you're, you know, there's 10% white in you, 5% black in. As soon as you are of colour, they don't give a damn. You know, you're dead, they're going to shoot you, you're arrested, you're, you know, so it's like, I think that's for people to be aware of. Colorism is a real thing. And, and I don't ever want to take away from people that are of darker skin that do probably face a more of a level of suppression than I have. So I don't want to take away from that ever. But when we're doing us versus them, as in white supremacists and racists, they're not worrying about how dark or light you are when they're coming to be racist towards you, abuse you, kill you, etc. So I, I just think that's a key, really important point to make. Um, and I think I've lost my other point, but that I really wanted to just make. Oh, actually, yeah, about the us being divided again. British uh, colonialism. We it's a, we are they are doing a perfect job by having us against each other, and it's something that we. I don't ever want to put blame on the black community because I think again, racists love that because they like to add that to their list of all oh, it's you guys' fault. But I do think we need more coming together, but we need to understand that it is not of our fault in any way. It's been purposely imposed and put on us from colonialism, some of it going dating back from our own cultures or traditions, but they created a system to divide and to make us hate each other and to make us hate ourselves. And so that we are pitching against each other. Me growing up in the UK, it used to be a massive thing between African community and West Indian community. We hated each other. Like I can't even describe to you at school the way people would speak to each other, be like really prejudiced towards each other's foods, the way people spoke, especially more towards the African community. They, uh, you know, the West Indian community would probably maybe feel like they're a bit more British. Again, through no fault of anyone's, through what they've done to us. Um, and it was really hard to see what I am seeing since 2020, which is a breath of fresh air for me, for the from the younger generation, is people actually for the first time I feel like really coming together. I think it helps with the you know Afro beats and music and the way that our culture is being spread more. Um, but now people are like, well, it's us against them in terms of we need to be together as a community. So it's not about whether I'm African or West Indian. We're black and we need to support each other. So that was my other point. And I think I am actually seeing within the younger generation change, positive change in the way that the black community is coming together in the UK anyway. I'm going to call on you a little bit because I know this is a conversation we've had, Vive, um, about uh, Sula talked about kind of like, African versus Caribbean in the UK. And that's something that is a big deal here in the US too. You know, growing up in South Florida, like she said, is very diverse. And you said, you know, Sula, that Africans were at the forefront of the teasing or the um, mm -hmm. exiling of their food. That was yeah. something that, you know, growing up in South Florida, I noticed was very heavily placed on the Haitian community. Um, I'll let you speak to that, Vivek, because I know, you know, your parents are both immigrants from Haiti. You have two different perspectives there and you have your own views as well. What's unfortunate is even though I never came off the banana boat, living in South Florida for my whole life was the banana boat joke about how we got on a boat and came from Haiti to America, which mm. I always thought was hilarious. I was like, I, I was born in Brooklyn, but like, okay. Thank you for that. Um, so it's definitely been a little different for me because in South Florida, there was a lot of, and I, I don't, I blame South Florida a little bit for this because I don't, I've not experienced this outside of South Florida in terms of even in New York, even in Tennessee, even in Georgia, I've not experienced this type of classism besides in South Florida, where depending on, even if I'm, I have 
I'm born in America, but I have any type of Haitian or African roots, there's some type of prejudice against me and the next person, which is, again, like I said, I've not experienced in New York, in Brooklyn, in Tennessee, in Atlanta. I've never experienced it before. Um, so South Florida was really a, a learning curve in how to navigate you know, I'm in a proper school, I'm in a, a art school. Um, and I'm one of few black people in this art school from young age. After being in New York for so many years around kids that looked like me that spoke like me that had parents like me that had culture like me. And then my parents kind of just jolted me into this new environment and expected me to thrive. Um, and Haitian parents, no matter where you're at, any type of ethnic parents, no matter where you're at, they expect you to thrive to a certain extent. Um, they don't care where they threw you or what that's like for you. They don't care. You have to have certain grades. You have to have certain expectations of, you know, where you're at in the school and, you know, what you're doing. So that was a lot for me, unfortunately. That was something I had to deal with. So um, for me, going to school was a lot different for a lot of kids because, you had expectations of your parents, you had expectations of school, and you had your own wants and needs that you wanted to, you know, accomplish, but those were like 10% of what you could actually accomplish. So um, a lot of this was a lot different for me than a lot of kids, um, even though I was not, I was first generation coming into this, um, you had a lot of different pressures and different things that you had to deal with. So my experience, unfortunately, was a lot different, but I feel like I'm very grateful for it um, because I had the opportunity to develop and grow besides just being the Haitian kid in school. I got to find my own niche in music and my own niche in arts that helped me develop besides just being the Haitian kid in school. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful, but I'm also like, I wish it was a little different at the same time. Yeah. I think too, like one of the primary things that I'm hearing is like, from what Sula was saying and, and the conversations we've had is like, there's this air of like, one, not coming together, like us against them. But there's also this, and I don't know if it's in the UK, Sula, but this air of like people who immigrate from other countries as black people, you're considered African-American once you're here in, in the US. Mm -hmm. However, within these individual communities and you know, from Kazim even, I've, I've heard confirmation like um, African parents, if they immigrated, they're gonna talk poorly and look poorly down on African-American descendants of slaves. Haitian people, oh, they're lazy, oh, they're this. And it's crazy that we've created these like, ideas or, or perpetuated these ideas about each other that really that that's what they want from us and mm -hmm. i always say like for the haitian diaspora specifically i remember in middle school people making fun of the african kid or the haitian kid because of how they talk their accent or their food or their mom showing up to school and and she's an immigrant she doesn't speak english and i i just now i think back and what i always say is like imagine if at that time, that sixth grade history class, they taught us about the Haitian Revolution and how that was the first free African country outside of Africa. There would be a, a totally different respect within the students 
especially black students for Haitian students and, and some of that tension would not be some of that classism that you talked about. We wouldn't be mm-hmm. looking down on Haitian people, but they don't want us to know our history. They, they really don't. The next question is, um, and a lot of us have kind of um, touched on it, but the purpose. So the literal definition, or not the purpose, the um, identity. So the literal definition is the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. Um, so the question is, how do you identify within that diaspora? And, it, and that can be racially, that can be um, uh, work-wise, uh, sexual orientation. I identify racially as Black. Ethnically, I'm Puerto Rican. I say Afro-Latin or Latina, um, Caribbean. Um, so like it, it can be broad or um, kind of tight depending on who I'm talking to because for me, how I communicate is by finding connection with other people. So when I'm talking to Jamaicans and Haitians and um, Antiguans, you know, I'm Caribbean. Like I, we understand each other, we're Caribbean, but ultimately I'm African-American and I consider the vast majority of us here to be African-American in the in the United States. But, but really on an even larger scale, that for me is like, we're all black, like period. Like and from the UK to Asia to, everywhere else in Europe and across the continent of Africa, we're black. And um, that's how I identify um, within that framework. Um, And for me, our food, our um, culture, um, the things, our music, just all of that is a part of our identity for me. And I think it stems, you know, in some degree to our ancestral um, culture, but also what kind of creates our identity um, and contributes to it is part of the struggle and resiliency that we've, you know, had to use to survive. Like when I think about, you know, my ancestors on my father's side who, you know, as African-Americans, what we've had to literally endure to just be here today, I know that part of our culture is resiliency. Like I am naturally someone who like you get knocked down, you're going to come right back up because you don't have a choice. You have to keep going regardless of what's going to be, you know, thrown at you. From the UK perspective, um, or my perspective, it's, it's, it definitely is different how we view ourselves, I think, in the UK or where have the boxes that we put ourselves in, in in terms of people of color from my own perspective. So I'm half white, <clears throat> half Jamaican or half British, half Jamaican. Um, my mum grew up in the UK, born and bred. My father came over from uh, Jamaica when he was 16 years old. And I found his papers the other day, which was mind blowing to me because if I think of a 16 year old child that I teach or that I have family members that are teenagers getting on a boat from Jamaica on their own, saying goodbye to their family, being led to believe they're coming to a beautiful place that's going to give them money and stuff like that. And we're going back in the forties. I can't even fathom it. I just can't even fathom it. And then when he got here, which is still so mind blowing to me, he had to live in a house of prostitutes or a female worker, uh, sex workers, because they were the only women that would allow him to stay in the home with him because he was black. So when you, in the 40s and the 50s in the UK, it used to say no blacks, no Irish, no dogs on the doors. So 
I say that to say where my father's come from or that side of my family, like you said, just to, I'm lucky to just be here because he survived that. I wouldn't be here if he hadn't survived like that. That level of resilience for a 16 year old child to come to another country, face that level of racism. And, you know, I could go on for hours about the level that he faced. So I have two very different cultures that I grew up in. Uh, what I'm lucky to have had is a white mother that taught me my black history and a white mum that knew that if she was going to have children of colour or she classed us as black, she had to learn herself black history and she had to let us know what we were going to face in the world. And I know that that is not common because I have, you know, I know mixed, you know, people that are in relationships that are not that, they're not, uh, that are white, that have mixed race children that don't even give their children that level of education or knowledge now. So I know how uncommon that is and how lucky I am for that. So um, yeah, that is, that's how I identify. Um, and I class myself as mixed race. I see my, I saw myself for a long time as mixed race and was proud of that. I lived in a very diverse area in East London that was, had every color and person you can imagine. So I didn't really, feel like I needed to stand out in a way of like I'm black or anything like that I was just like I'm mixed on me I actually felt quite accepted it wasn't until I went to university and I started working that I faced real racism and I forget the mixed race I just realized these people are viewing me as black regardless my mum and dad taught me from young that if you have one drop of black blood in you your class is black that's how other people will treat you um, I identify more now as a woman of colour. I'm not, I don't identify as British because there's nothing proud about me, but I'm not proud of being British in any way. I'm quite disgusted by, you know, the British government, Britain, how we behave, what we've done. But I won't take away what I've got from my mum and that side of my family. But yeah, I would say I'm a person of colour, mixed race, dual heritage. Um, I'm definitely connecting with my black side more and more and more. I teach black education. I know I, I've been studying black history. I'm really trying to connect more with my Rastafarian roots. I'm going to Africa soon. So I feel a need to connect with it because it's been so taken away from us. But I don't know if that answered the question of identity, but that's kind of me and how I view things. In terms of identity, like I said, Haitian American, I never really got the identity of being able to mark Haitian American on any paperwork I've ever put down in the United States, it's always African-American, there's no other option. It's very specific, um, which has always been troubling to me because I, not saying I've never, I've tried to find some kind of lineage in my family. Unfortunately, Haitians, my Haitian family did not, on my mom or my dad's side, did not do a good job of piecing together where our family came from or our lineage past my dad's mom. I don't have much past that besides my grandmother in terms of where we came from or, you know, tribes or anything like that. So in terms of finding that, I would have to probably do some type of 23andMe or something like that to see if I can find some answers in that method. But I identify with her, um, Sula, mentioning that there's some identity crisis in what your parents have given you in terms of clues what society have given you in terms of what you should be and what you you're trying to decipher between the three, right? Mm -hmm. of her side, their side, the truth, right? Yeah. Of, of figuring out who are you or am I Haitian American? Am I African American? Like if I really took the time to do the research, what am I really? Because all I have is my mom who love her to death, but as soon as she divorced my dad, the Haitian culture just was like cut. Mm -hmm. She was like, I'm Orthodox Haitian. I don't want to do X, Y, and Z. Anything Haitian reminded her of my dad. 
so no music, no food. Like it, it became very isolated um, after half your life being very indated in the culture, in the in the language, in the food, and everything. Um, so now being adult, you're kind of like I I got severed halfway through the journey of of who I I quote unquote the only lineage I had in the diaspora was was Haiti, and that was cut off. And so now being an adult and realizing I me and my sister not even intentionally both learned um, we went to college together, and we started to do Haitian Creole as a class together through three or four years we did Haitian Creole to expert level. Um, because our mother was full on like, no food, no language, like we're done with that. We're, I'm in America now and I'm fully immersing in this without understanding the culture she left behind for us. And the culture that we would hope to, now we're older, we both talk about it all the time, like we want to bring to our children and the mm -hmm. next generations, you know, and we don't have that background from her. And we don't have the background from my father because they separated very young for us. So it's a it's another additional process in in kind of finding what did the diaspora mean for you, but also what does it mean for my kids, and what do I want it to mean for my kids moving forward and my family and my generations moving forward, and that's a bigger conversation as I'm starting to dip into the diaspora from being cut off at ten and now I'm 22 and starting to like dip into it trying to figure it out now i'm 30 almost and now I'm, I'm i'm still dipping into it and trying to figure out what does that mean for me and my family moving forward big question my um journey to of the diaspora has been very rocky um definitely uh, my intersectionality is heavy um of my my great grandmother and my grandmother came from louisiana they're they are um creole Creole people of color, excuse me, it's a little early on that. Creole people of color, um, they grew up in Louisiana. They decided to, my great-grandmother uh, decided, I think she married my great-grandfather, which was um, a Chinese man at the age of 19. At the time, my grandma, my great-grandmother grew up in 1923, um, and she lived to be 96. Um, interesting, like my family always, co-mingled with like a lot of different races and a lot of different like um areas my my regular grandma she married a french man um so like my culture is kind of like twisted and like like all over the place but long story short they all decided to um half of them decided to move out of the south and come to the north right and they decided to settle either in vegas or in california um, in San Francisco. And so it's been a kind of a rocky road for me to kind of like put the pieces together on exactly where everything is. And unfortunately for me, my family does not get along anymore. Uh, my family does not want to cooperate with each other. People look down on each other. I feel shunned from my own community, unfortunately. Even when growing up, um, even growing up with my peers, you know, they're like, they don't view me as like black enough. They view me as like, oh, well, he's just, you know, the whitewashed black kid, <laughs> he can hang out, I guess, you know? And I just think that it's been very like a hard journey to kind of be like, you know, I'm not defending um, where I'm at in my journey. I'm not defending um, how black I am or, you know, how acknowledged I am of myself or any of that. 
for anybody else to put on uh, put on like a juror or something to judge. Okay, he's black. There we go. I grew up. I grew up in Sunnydale Project in San Francisco, the worst projects out here with my close-knit family. I almost got shot three times in my life because of that, because my grandmother um, never worked in her life um, because she didn't want to work. And also, too, she didn't know how to read or write. Um, and so it was kind of hard for her to do so because she never had the privilege of going to school because my great-grandmother and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and so it was just very hard of a journey. My grandmother didn't learn how to read until she started reading the Bible, she said um, at the time, um, which is really funny. I have to teach you how to read and write. So to be honest with everyone here, I have been like the backbone of my whole family staying together. It's been a lot of like what I would call like black on black crime. because Like we don't like each other because of colorism. We don't like you because you're doing better in your life. We don't like you because you decided to move out of the South or California or whatever. It's just been a whole whirlwind of experiences all over the place, to be honest with you. So my identity within the African diaspora, well, I was born, uh, born in Nigeria, raised there for a little bit till four, came here when I was four, um, basically grew up in Tampa, Florida all my life. Um, my parents, right, growing up, they spoke to me in Yoruba, right? That's one of the tribes in Nigeria, Yoruba, right? And they spoke to me in Yoruba. I really wish that they put an emphasis that I learn how to speak it too, because right now I can understand them in Yoruba. I can't really speak it, you know? And then there's some, uh, there's, I'm pretty sure there's some vocabulary in your, in back in Nigeria, right? Where people use all the time, but because my parents, they don't say it enough around me when I was a kid, you know, I would be like, what's that, you know? So that's one of the things that I really wish, you know, part of my identity was more emphasized, you know, is the language, right? You know, other than that, you know, you know, back home in Nigeria, right? People actually, yeah, millennials, Gen Zs back home in Nigeria who are grown up with a culture or whatnot, like the language back home is actually deteriorating too, where they can only understand it, understand it like hearing it, but not actually speaking it. Like they're making their own version of, you know, Yoruba is it's, it's pigeon really is broken English and it has little um, uh, words and phrases from like all three of the major tribes here and there. Right. And so I, I tend to notice that that's the new identity that's going on over there. Now, I'm not sure if I I'm not sure if that's like the way how it has to go but i really have a sense of feeling that man like i really want to learn like my 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 language right like fully and and purely right with no broken pieces here and there of like english you know because that's what the colonizers did they brought in english and that's why nigeria is like one of the most english-speaking countries in the world right and so you know Part of my identity, yeah, is striving to learn Yoruba, you know. Um, another thing is they also put an emphasis on school, right? Like you, the iconic Western school, like school, 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 right? 
they really haven't really taught me of like hey you know things of like cultures and traditions that you know have how they grew grew up in you know like it was just all like hey you know all this stuff will come to you when we visit Nigeria more often like I've only been there back there like twice you know out of all my 28 years of existence you know it, it's crazy but yeah like I mean hopefully that later on this year right during December I'll I'll go back but yeah it's it is is this a weird mangled mess with me and my parents it's just like i really wish that there were just certain things that they would uh, bring on to me versus like you know one thing they're always th they're just looking towards survival like you know how we're going to survive here in the u.s right okay you know uh, all of our kids got to go through you know pharmacy school med school engineering school computer engineering and whatnot right they're just focusing on like the main goal but then you know they're also forgetting some things here and there which kind of upsets me it kind of saddens me a little but you know I, at the end of the day right i know who i am and i can always strive to be you know that you know so yeah that's that's what my identity is my ethnic identity i identify as afro-latina um i was born and raised in los angeles my parents are um immigrants pretty much they were born in honduras uh i am a descendant of the gariguna people um so my ancestors were shipped from parts of west africa to the caribbean and then exiled along the coast of honduras um, by the british um both my parents like i said were born in honduras so i'm first generation um i've struggled with my racial identity growing up because I felt like I had to hide being Latina because I didn't look like it. And I also didn't speak Spanish. Um, during the time when I was growing up, um, the research and the system and the ideology at the time was, you know, if your first language is in English, you know, and you speak another language in this country, you're gonna have a hard time learning how to read and your learning is gonna be impaired. But what we, from, we know from language acquisition and research now, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, you're not gonna have any struggles learning English if your first language is in English. Um, so because of that, you know, my mom was very scared to even teach me Spanish because like I said, the system at the time was, you know, telling parents and telling um, people that, you know, they have to speak English, they're gonna have difficulty learning and things like that. So just that, ideology and being, you know, of the time kind of held me back, I felt like, from accessing the language from my culture. Um, both my parents speak Spanish. Um, I grew up in a household where when they didn't want me to know what they were talking about, they would speak Spanish <laughs> to each other. <laughs> um, so, like I said, I really, really struggled, but because I didn't speak the language, I didn't look like that. Obviously, I look Black, you know, I um, grew up in L.A., um, there's not really a lot of um, Afro-Latina culture like Dominicans or anyone that's, you know, Black and Hispanic um, in L.A. So it was very, very hard for even my friends to understand, like, how I wasn't, 
like how I was black, but my mother spoke Spanish mm -hmm. and why she had an accent and why I wasn't Mexican, because that's another thing. Like in California, it's just like, if you're Hispanic, you're just Mexican, like you're nothing else. It's just Mexican, mm -hmm. white, black, you know? And if you're kind of not in that, um, those categories, you're automatically an other. And that's how I felt growing up. Um, pretty much. It wasn't until I moved to New York City um, where I did my undergraduate where I felt more embraced by my culture because I started um, to be exposed to more people that look like me, that had the same experience that I had, you know, that had ethnic parents, you know, that had, um, you know, vacations in third world countries, you know, for the summer. Like it was just literally um, a whole shift when I moved to a whole different state. Um, and that was New York, because it was just kind of like a melting pot. Um, but when it comes to my identity, currently I'm more proud of my Latina side, you know, even though um, I understand more Spanish than I speak, um, I'm not shy anymore about it. You know, I'm more equipped, you know, to talk about it. I have more confidence, you know, to help people understand me and you know where i come from um because it is important to me um even though the world may not see that just by looking at you know just a black girl from la i identify as black um african-american and my father is from detroit my mother is from the panhandle uh, florida area so she grew up in the south around a lot of racism. Um, I, I didn't grow up um, there. Are, I grew up in DC and I come from um, military parents. So mm -hmm. um, they both felt obligated to join the military due to, you know, dead end, um, dead end type of situations when you turn 18 where, you know, your older sister's gotten pregnant, a teenage mom, um, you know, in Detroit where my father grew up, there wasn't a lot of positive things going on there. So I ended up growing up in DC and um, we didn't talk about racism much in DC. Uh, I, I don't know why I, I kind of question it now where I'm like, okay, I learned what I learned in school. They didn't really talk to us about um, African, well, just being black in the most positive way. Like we learned about slavery and things like that, but when I look back on it, I just don't feel like I really got the full spectrum of everything. And we didn't really talk about racism unless things made national news. So I, I didn't feel very connected to my blackness growing up. Um, when I would go back home to, when I say home, I grew up um, in a single family household. My mom, um, my mom is a single mom. And we would go back to the panhandle and I have um, seven, my, my grandmother has seven kids, including my mom and five out of the seven still live there. Very, very small town. So, you know, my grandmother never had like a real desk job or she cleaned houses her whole entire life, like um, mansions, you know, on the water um, for rich white people. So, you know, it's a lot of trauma in our family when it comes to our history because we don't really know as far as the lineage goes, like what's, what's really going on. Um, 
my brother, he changed his name. I have a brother and a little sister. My brother, uh, we're, um, I'm, I'm 32. My brother's 30. Uh, my brother came to a point where five years ago, he changed his last name because he just didn't connect with my father because my father left us when we were two. Um, so well, when I was two and he was very young. So he, my brother found the, the plantation actually that um, my uh, on my father's side and it was hard it was hard because he wanted to go visit it, it was a very weird feeling to even engage with him about it because I'm very sensitive so I, I just can't deal with that honestly um but you know he 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 was full speed ahead with it so I would I would talk to him about it a lot and he would always call me with these new discoveries and stuff and then he just got to a point where he was like, you know what? I just don't want to deal with this. I don't want to be connected to any of this. I want to change my last name. And a lot of my, everybody in my family, my uncles, they all thought it was really weird, you know? And to this day, we don't have a relationship with our father, by the way. So I just felt like he needed to do it for him. And I support him, you know? I, I think it's very different, but I, I just, we, we, we all have a lot of trauma within the diaspora you know what I mean so I, I I support all of us and you know whatever it takes for you to heal mm -hmm. I'm I'm here for it and even if it's very abnormal you know we, we have our slave owner's name let's just be real so I can't be mad at my brother for feeling how he feels yeah. so I don't know I, I feel like I kind of just went ran off the rails a little bit um but yeah we didn't talk about um racism that much growing up um, so when we got to a certain point where we were just like able to just, and, and, and the resources we have these days, my, my mom did 23andMe a few years ago, all those things. So I just feel like we start just having a lot of questions and being black. Like I'm, I don't, I really don't, we're black. Like we, I can't say like I'm, I'm Hispanic, half Hispanic, half white, you know, any of that. I just, we're, we do, we, there's just a lot of dead ends. Do you feel me? Well, there's a plantation and we see that, you know, there was some mixing with some white and black going on in there. But yes, that's 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 my that's why I, I identify as black. <laughs> so I identify as a Afro-Latino. Um, I've grown up in two different homes because my parents didn't live together. Uh, my mom's Puerto Rican. My dad is black. And I uh, have always been fascinated with history and, and wanting to figure out how we got where we got. Um, but growing up, it's always been a struggle with my identity. Um, growing up in a predominantly Puerto Rican neighborhood, I was always the black guy or always the person left out um, because, I, you know, they, like, you, like, you know, you've mentioned it before, how people project their own identity on you um, and they, they, or they don't associate you at all. Uh, and so, Growing up in, in like North Philly, where there are very few black people, you had problems with racism and being called the you know the N word and and all kinds of stuff. And then growing up in West Philly, I would literally get jumped for being light skinned. Um, like it happened happened more more times than I like to say. Um, say it again. Hate from both sides. Yeah, I got I got a lot of hate from both sides. So it was definitely difficult to to try and, and identify with anyone. And I resented I had a lot of resentment built up towards I wouldn't say myself because I knew 
what was happening wasn't as a result of something I was doing um, when I was just existing and having to to deal with it, you know. And I didn't know how to, I didn't know whether to call it bullying or, or just whatever it was, right? Um, because one, I, as a black man, and especially growing up in Philly, you, you have to know how to defend yourself. It, it was just, it was just something that was innate and embedded in you. And, you know, unfortunately I've experienced the worst of, of all of our quote unquote culture. Um, you know, on, on my, on my uncle's side, on my mom's side, my uncle would have like a fighting rink because that's what Puerto Ricans did. They just, they either fought dogs or they fought their nephews. Um, or like would have their, their nephews and nieces fight all the time. So that it was always a very weird way of trying to identify because, you know, you didn't want to identify with all the negatives. Um, and you're not taught any of the positive history. You're not taught any of the positive present day situation that, that, you know, we could all find like there's, there's safe, there are safe spaces for us, but there are very few and far between, especially for someone who's of mixed race. Or, because I mean, honestly, I identify as black, period. Even if, I, even if you want to say Puerto Rican, right? Uh, Puerto Ricans are, were also enslaved and we, we, are, we come in all different shades, literally. So, I think to, you know, slavery. Yeah, so it was, you know, it was very, very difficult. Um, I think one day um, at CCP, I discovered uh, an African encyclopedia and I wasted the entire semester just reading that, trying to find some something I can identify with. And, you know, of course I did, um, but that will go on to the next conversation about purpose um, and, and what I found. But yes, I, I identify as an Afro-Latino, I identify as a black man, and I identify as an ally, obviously, um, for all of our people, you know, especially in LGBTQ, who need it the most, <laughs> they need, they need our, our, uh, you know, alliance, they need our support, um, you know, just to exist, especially today. So that's something that has always resonated with me growing up with with family members who are in the LGBT and those being my favorite people. Um, but yeah, that's how I identify. Guys, I heard a lot about like loss of language and how that feels like somewhat of a loss of identity. Um, I've heard a lot about survival and how, you know, maybe like suppressing some of our, um, our parents specifically suppressing some of their culture, and their identity as a means of survival. Um, which is so sad. Um, I heard, you know, um, something that I am really interested in because of who I am and how I grew up, like the historical context around how people look and where they're from. So um, Leah, you talked about being um, a descendant of the Garifuna people. And when I went to Costa Rica for the first time a few years ago, I, I had like, I couldn't sleep the first night because I had this like revelation, like about, you know, in in Dominican Republic, you know, um, the the diseases that were brought to the island like killed all of the native people, and so you have a predominantly black and white Creole country who they you know try to identify with their native ancestry that frankly doesn't actually exist. You have Puerto Ricans who have perpetuated this idea of being the perfect mix, you know. Uh, 
equal parts native, equal parts black, equal parts um, white. And I didn't even realize growing up, like my mom was saying things like trigenia to me, like, oh, that's how you look. And like, really, like that was the first time someone was fetishizing me. And it just became something that, you know, was like part of my life, part of my identity. And um, so when I went to Costa Rica and I realized, wow, like, okay, the people in Costa Rica, like on the, the coast, you know, Leah, you talked about your family being from the coast. That's where in, you know, a lot of these Central and South American countries, that's where the Black people are. And that's directly a result of the slave trade. Yeah. When you look at the, the Caribbean, yeah you know, countries, these small islands, there, you know, in some ways was a lot of mixing. You look at Haiti and, you know, the historical context that I started to learn there was like, you know, the conditions were so bad for slaves that the life expectancy once you got to the island was four or five years. And so when you hear Haitian Creole, you hear a lot of like African sounding words because the, how, the language evolved, people didn't have enough time to really lose their African language all the way. And so like, you can hear it in the food and the culture, you can see like more of the African roots than you can in other countries where that wasn't the case. The historical context is they wiped out an entire group of people or, you know, mixing was perpetuated. So I'm, I'm really interested in, in those conversations. Um, but also in the understanding that like we as a generation it seems like have had to make a conscious choice to say i want to go back and learn these languages i want to be in touch with my rastafarian roots i want to learn haitian creole i want to you know speak yoruba like that's something that we now that we're coming into this enlightenment period that um we're all you know embracing our blackness and embracing what it means to be part of this diaspora. I think it's so important that we continue to do that. I had following on Jackie from what you're saying, two points. One, uh, Courtney, about name change and your brother and his name change. I'm really going through a process at the minute about whether I want to continue to keep my surname um, because it is a slave name. The reason I, the only reason that I am holding on to keeping it is because my dad passed when I was 18. So it is, it would lose his name or you know if he was here i think i would have a a different i would be i would have changed it by now basically but that's the reason i can't let go of it but the more i learn the more i'm unlearning and learning and connecting with my roots more and more and going into schools every day and teaching real black history and seeing the change in our black students and all students when they learn real history and our real african history and where we came from as kings and queens and not slavery and all of those things i'm like the more i cannot hold on to a slave name i just can't it's like my spirit doesn't even want to allow me to so i fully understand why your brother feels like that um so i'm battling between that at the moment i feel that in time it's going to be it's going to happen uh the more i go back and reconnect with jamaica and reconnect with uh, some parts of africa i want to visit that was one point the other point is what i've taken from all of us which is amazing but also hard is that we are all unlearning or relearning ourselves again um i've just i'm very open about this because i really believe in mental health and i'm an advocate for it i've just been going through some trauma trauma 
therapy, trauma, PTSD, trauma therapy, because of a lot of trauma that I've had in my childhood and that I've grown up in. I've lost both my parents. I've had a lot happen in my life. But one of the key things I was actually focusing on within my therapy was around racism. I've had terrible racism in my life, like all of us, specifically in South Korea, but from my white grandparents and at university, but like traumatic, really traumatic. And it has really impacted me. And through all of this therapy and learning myself again and coming into my truth and all of that, I feel like I'm starting from scratch a little bit because like we spoke about before, I'm who I've been told I was, mixed race, you know, and, and in many beautiful ways. My mom said, you're black, you're beautiful, all of those things, but I've had this identity put on me. Um, I've, society's told me I'm a certain thing. I felt a way and I kind of just not really sure how I feel about any of it, if that makes sense. So I'm hearing from all of you quite similarly that like we're all learning and unlearning and trying to find our identity or like trying to find it for the first time. And it's incredible to hear, but it, it, it makes me sad also, because if you think about the white community, for example, many of my white friends have not even had to go through this. It's not even a thing. They just go through their daily life. And it's not that they don't have hard times or trauma, but like the fact that we are as adults being like, do I even know who I am right now? That's hard, but also really exciting, I think as well. So those are my points. So um, I just want to say that I, I think the uh, to the name change thing, I feel like watching my brother go through that, it was very interesting because we don't have a connection with our father. Yeah. And I, I believe that, you know, we don't have a lot to grab onto. So it's like, it's still history, right? So we still, you still want to know, have an easier route to that with yes. the last name. It's almost like we're we're trained to feel like we have to stay connected to it, you know? So for, I'm married. So I changed my name to my husband's last name, but that still doesn't mean that, you know, it has like a whole bunch of righteousness to it. Right. And, and that, you know, I haven't done any research on that. Just the same reason I didn't do any research on my other last name. My brother took the lead on that. So I just, I just understand all sides. And um, I thought it was beautiful. I thought, he, his last name is Amory and he, he, he it, I, I'm, I hate to say that I really don't remember what it means, but it, it literally means like he, he brought it from like within like being a king, um, ascending. Um, he uses a lot of those terms and he describes, um, describes it to me. So I'm just proud of him. I'm just proud to see some change and I'm just very proud of that. And I'm, and I'm, I'm proud of his courage because we, I have one aunt and uh six uncles you know or, or my grandma has two girls and five boys sorry so th they were really giving him a hard time in a, in a weird way you know like the cold shoulder type of thing like not really entertaining it hopefully it would just die out and he did it so he's so brave he's really brave thank you i wanted to um just comment on you know that choice that jackie brought up you know and having to perhaps you know lean a certain way you know and things like that because i think that it happens more often than you know it should you know and the diaspora is so grand you know it's there's just a lot of um different mixtures and just a lot of things um that aren't just a one size fits all and when you're in like a community to where you know you just want to fit in then it's kind of like you kind of do whatever you need to do to fit in. So you don't have that added stress, you know, um, but it really, really does something internally because, you know, 
it makes you feel like you're not being true to yourself at you know one point and then it's just like if you get to choose you know which side it's just like you still deal with perhaps maybe that internalizing guilt you know for the other side or you know or even you may not even have enough information or resources about which way you want to lean towards you know you may want to lean towards more like if you're mixed more towards your black side but you don't probably have any resources or know anything about that you know and then like it's really really hard especially when you feel like you're in the middle and you kind of have to make a choice um i wish it wasn't that way but i think it's good that we're having these conversations because it matters you know and it really impacts who you decide to be you know and who you want the world to you know view you as despite what perceptions they may already have about you i just i thank you all i love I, I love hearing everybody's stories and stuff like that. I wanted to share this with everybody to see a little bit of what I've been through. Um, a lot of society has treated me like an other and stuff like that, but I grew up right at home where I need to be, right? And I call this picture like 50 Shades of Black if you were able to see it. It's interesting how people like label us as like the color of our skin and that's who you are and this is how you function in society, but I just grew up right at home, you know? Really interesting to see. That's all I wanted to say. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, one thing that stuck out to me and, and that I think is a good segue into the purpose conversation is, um, Sula, you said you dealt with racism like from your own family. And um, my mother's side, though they are white passing, they do not identify as white. They're Latina. My grandmother um, was a native African woman who spent her uh, life and existence trying to make sure her kids would be white passing. My grandfather is Puerto Rican, but he was a white man. He, you know, listened to country music and, and called it shit kicking music. And like, you know, that was him. Um, but, you know, even though it wasn't blatant racism like from a white person there is in the latin community um this perpetuation of colorism of trying to distance yourself from being black that like really i didn't realize affected me because you think you know as a black person your safe space is home right you you said like you grew up right at home trey well right at home for me was not necessarily where me and my younger sister felt like we were being heard or understood. There were many times where my mom, you know, she was um, a very like open person and, and she didn't have any disdain towards black people, but comments being made about the texture of my hair or, um, you know, the fact that, oh, you don't need weave like other people. Like there was just a lot of this like, um, and, air a mist of like anti-blackness that people don't even realize they've internalized that i'm just really lucky that my younger sister and i like that's not something that we perpetuate um and it's, it's been largely part of my purpose the last question um before we all go and and i know we're at time very soon so we can try and, and breeze through this but is you know, like purpose, the literal definition of purpose is the reason for which someone was created um, or for which, you know, something exists, one's intention or objective. And my intention and objective with not only this conversation, but um, also in 
you know, creating this podcast and just in my life is to make sure that I'm actively and intentionally being pro-Black in every aspect of my life from who I date and who my friends are, you know, what I do for work now. Like I'm blessed to say that I work for a black company who is doing things for black people. Like this is the stuff that I dreamed about because I know that we need it. I know that there's a lot of confusion and unknown and and just hearing all of you like have so many similar stories about feeling like, like Sula said, like we're relearning, we're trying to discover who we are. Like my, it's my purpose to, and, and my life's work to make sure that I am actively anti-racist and pro-black and calling shit out, you know? One of the the things I've been doing my research and doing my reading and Ibram X. Kendi is, you know, someone that I look up to as an educator and he has a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And one of the, the main things he talks about in the beginning is that in order to move past racism, we have to one operationally define it. We have to all agree on what the definition of racism is or the many definitions. And then at every point, at every turn that we can and that it arises, we need to call it out and say, that's what racism is. And 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 this is how you not be racist, you know, like, because just because we're black and this was something that I didn't always agree with until I started reading and, and doing the work you can be racist as someone who's black. You can perpetuate racism. And it's not what, you know, the white people would say like anti or uh, uh, reverse racism. It's not, you know, saying like, oh, white people are evil. Like really being a racist as a black person is saying that because you are black, X, Y, Z, because like we've all been saying, we are diverse. There's nothing that means what we do or what we feel or how we act that is black, you know, like we have cultural similarities, we share things, but being black is not, it's not even a real thing. Like they created that, you know what I mean? Like, so um, yeah, the purpose that I have here is, and it came up to have, you know, conversations about black mental health, conversations about the black family, um, about being a parent, about our relationships with our parents. Um, there's a whole list that I sent um, you guys. It's in the calendar um, invite as well as the form um, that I want to, you know, work through to with different people because we have experts on this call in mental health. Sula, we have Leah Bonia, we have um, Trey, who all, you know, studied and worked you know, diligently one on their mental health, but also on helping other people. And and that's something I'm passionate about. So there's tons of conversations that we're going to continue to have that I want to tap different people on. There's a whole conversation around being mixed race and multicultural that I think we need to have um, because there's a lot of stories there that I think we can all learn from. Um, So that's my purpose. And I'm so grateful that you're all here to be a part of this. Um, And I'm, I'm very curious what your purpose is and what, you know, moving forward, what topics and conversations are important for you within that purpose to uplift within our community and within the African diaspora? My purpose um, is to get everyone in the diaspora politically mature. Um, as, as I said before, I study uh, historical politics and you know, I study legislation that has been passed in the in the years, especially in America and uh, and abroad. 
you know, all the way up until, you know, the birth of Liberia in Africa, which was literally birthed out of segregation um, from by American politics. So it's and that's something that, you know, if we if we paid attention to as as a people, we'd be able to actually take advantage of. Um, it's there's a lot of there's a lot that we as as a diaspora um, have missed out over the years because of actual white terrorism taking us out of politics. And I, I don't think that there is a better climate than now for us to start getting more engaged um, and studying the history. Um, you know, for example, the word Jemmy uh, comes from an, a former African slave from Angola. Um, his no one really knows his true name. They only know him as Jemmy. But this guy spoke seven languages. He understood uh, Yoruba. He understood uh, Spanish, French, um, English. He even spoke uh, in different dialects like Creole. And the and again, this is why I think it's important to to get involved. Um, in the 1700s, this guy had read a Spanish news article that the Spanish colonies were allowing, because again, uh, you know, the Spanish stopped slavery before the United States did, so so did the British, but that didn't mean that the United States was going to loosen their grip. So Spanish, he read that article and used that information to start a, what's called the, uh, the Stono Rebellion, which he led a hundred black people south to Florida which was a Spanish colony at the time. So, you know, it's movements like that are the reason why I think it's important for us to get in, engaged and educated and things like that. So, yeah, um, that's my purpose and that's my intent. And I, and I appreciate you guys listening to that story and why, you know, I think it's important and, I, and I'm glad that you're all here for that. My purpose is to continue to try and stamp out racism. I also feel absolutely ridiculous saying that because I sadly, if I'm completely honest, don't know if that's ever going to happen. But I cannot continue to sit by and let happen what is happening. And I believe that education is power. And I believe that the younger generation are going to be our savior and our hope. And so that is my purpose. My The reason for that is I where this came from so strongly is my mum, my dad was a black historian um, and an activist, but my mum was also an activist. She took me on a protest at two and a half years old when a black man was killed at a police station in Hackney. So white woman with her kid in a buggy, she said we nearly got trampled by the police, but she said she was gonna be there. So in order to honor my parents as they both passed, I have to fight for what they fought for because they didn't fight that hard for uh, to you know, for me to have a better life, which they gave me, even though I don't think racism has changed that much, unfortunately, for me not to do something about that. And after facing terrible racism in South Korea, like I was attacked awful, like on a level that I never thought I would face. It put a fire in my belly pre-2020. I've always been a fighter and an activist, but it put a fire in my belly where I said, I will never in my life again allow this to continue. I'm going to call it out. I'm going to educate. I'm going to change it. So my purpose is to change it. It's hard. It's not easy. I've lost a lot of friends along the way. Well, maybe they weren't friends, but hey, I've actually lost family members, not lost as in had to cut people out of my life. Yeah. Um, but for me to be authentic and for this to really change, I have to do it. So my purpose is to continue to do everything in my power to 
stamp out racism, change systems, change people's minds, but also just openly see my truth and be completely unapologetic about that. Proud to be black, I'm proud to be here. Um, and we deserve our voice now and our time for things to like really be heard and change. Uh, topics coming up, I mean, I think you said so many of them, Jackie, there's so many incredible things that came, I could speak with you guys all day long. But right. I think having a podcast about or talk about being mixed race, dual heritage, or um, uh, I don't what is the term that you use in, in um, America? All of those, multicultural, biracial. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, no, terms come and go, but I think that's really important because it's like a whole race within itself um and how it can be really hard to grow up in those two cultures and your identity mental health black in the within the black community is massive and something that we need to do so much more especially black men and mental health and i'm a very big advocate for that so i think that is something we need to speak about so much more but um just want to thank you all it's been such a pleasure i'm so inspired by all of you it's just you know we're here to change and i think we're going to do some really great things I think that my purpose um, is to help people. I really think that I'm here because I have information. I have a story, you know, um, I feel like we don't have enough conversations about black culture, about the differences amongst people, amongst black people, the diaspora, um, and also to honor my ancestors. Um, I really, really feel as though, you know, I don't want to take my time here for granted. And I know my ancestor struggle is in vain. Mm -hmm. And looking at how far we've come, you know, and how far we have to go, I feel like it's my responsibility to continue to educate, you know, in the areas that I can educate in, continue to have conversations, continue to support y'all, you know, and each other and our community. Um, because without that, then it's kind of like in vain, you know, what did our ancestors struggle for, you know, if we're not doing something with that you know and i also think it's um really really important for us to talk about some of our barriers and problem solve them you know talk about some solutions you know um on how we can make certain impacts because a lot of times we get stuck just talking about the woes you know and talking about some of the trauma that we forget you know that there is the other side, you know, we forget that we are resilient and that we are beautiful and we have to figure out how to bring that in as well. And it, you can only do it with, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other, being open about your story, being open about, you know, sharing different perspectives and things like that. So I really believe that it's important that I'm here to share that, to connect and talk about our culture um, and to just raise awareness and understanding. I've been through a great amount of trauma, suffering, and just being like the the person who has to keep everybody else together. Because if you don't, everybody will just fall apart, you know, because they don't have the willpower to carry on all the time. And it's unfortunate for me to say. Um, I've been through a lot of great, a great deal of gun violence, sexual assault, uh, racism classism of course and the list goes on and on and on and that resonates with you and there's a lot of unlearning and a lot of um relearning of yourself 
And I do that through the lens of photography and art. Um, I want to be able to I, I want to be able to hold space for other people to share their stories and to kind of use that as a space of healing, as a space to share out to be able to be seen visible and to be able to grow their their entities and their own self and their own knowledge. I also want to be able to hold space to heal myself, my inner child, my inner teenager. Um, and I also think that my purpose is just to hold, to give space to people who need a listening ear, give space to people who need a visual eye, and give space to people who need an open heart and a shoulder to cry. Yeah, so um, I believe my place and purpose in the African diaspora, right, <clears throat> is that I want to let, you know, our people know that, hey, this if the West isn't for us, right, if, you know, America or if the UK or Germany or whatever isn't for us, like, we can always work on, like, the motherland, you know. Um, back in 2020, uh, Ghana had the year of return, or is it 2019 or something? Yeah. 2019, 2020, they had the year yeah, of return. Yeah, that started in uh, late 2018, actually. I'm actually part of that. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, there's uh, Africa's very, uh, you know, untapped, right? We have the resources to, like, you know, manufacture, right? Become, like, bigger than what, you know, China is today, right? You know, we have all these other countries trying to invest in China, I mean, in, in Africa, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, us as a diaspora people, right, we can invest in our own country and, you know, actually make it to where, like, hey, you know, you know we don't even need to like go out to like well you know and as africans well africans don't even need to go out to like you know america to like you know make a better life for you know for ourselves and like mm -hmm. you know we can even actually attract you know african-americans you know you know black people from the uk you know to like hey to you know live a whole new brand new life in you know nigeria or ghana or, or wherever in in all of africa you know to like settle you know and make new strides to something like hey, hey this is us this is Amazing. this is our thing you know so i believe that's my place you know just to, just to give them that experience that exposure you know i'm i'm i, I would say that i'm uh, i'm different you know and like all everyone else's story you know where like i'm actually from you know the motherland and whatnot and so I, I bring that unique you know, experience. Sorry, I know someone's gonna go next, but mine, I have a lot of African friends. My Nigerian and Ghanaian friends are living life a hundred times better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know in like America and the UK, like Africa is so rich. Of course there's poverty there, but if you see some of the poverty here, listen, mm -hmm. I, my, my aim and my plan is to get the hell out of here as soon as I can mm -hmm. and go in Ghana or somewhere like that, because, you know, I, these systems aren't going to change. We just have to yeah. be honest with that anytime soon. So let's be somewhere where we are be we're appreciated, we can thrive and we can mm -hmm. be happy. So I'm coming with you. I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're building a system in Nigeria. That's oh, it. Yeah. I'm, I'm oh yeah. <laughs> this is gonna be right. I'm multiple purposes. I don't think I have one purpose, unfortunately. I definitely want to hear other people's experience in the diaspora. Um, see if I can relate or maybe input in any capacity, but also make people aware of the Haitian diaspora and our experience as well, because unfortunately, Haiti does not, not unfortunately, but we do not identify with 
Latin America or a lot of the institutional things that we should quote unquote identify with. So really a part of my experience through the diaspora is really listening to other people's experiences compared to my parents and and and, and siblings and and uncles and aunts who've actually lived it and then really just making a middle ground between all of it. Um, my parents, um, like I said, my mom is very, I'm over Haiti. My dad is like, I'm going to retire there. He's going there next year. He's trying to live his rest of his life there. So it's two different aspects of Haiti I've always had. Um, but this, um, idea of a diaspora has been very negatively put on me because our diaspora has been Latin America, i.e. Dominican Republic, which has been very negative connotation, negative relations, even the immigration laws that have happened in Dominican in the last couple of years have been very discriminatory amongst Haiti to the point where when I wanted to cross the border, I was not allowed to cross because I was, even though I'm American, I have a U.S. passport. I was with a Haitian, um, a Haitian American man and I couldn't pass my dad. I couldn't pass. So this idea of purpose of diaspora is really to educate myself into a, a bigger diaspora because Haiti really don't identify with we are Haitian. This is us. This is our little island. This is who we are. We don't, we've never had a really good um, record keeping system of like understanding what villages of, of Africa we came from. Um, uh, I, if I had to learn, to be honest with you, I learned, I saw my grandmother for the first time as a, as a 23 year old. 10 months ago in a picture. I had never seen her young. I've never, we don't have pictures, we don't have records. My mom's records are messed up, my dad's records. Every single Haitian family member or friend I have who went from Haiti to America, their records are messed up. So we, it's very hard to find some sort of record of who you came from besides being like, we're from Haiti or from the island, that's it. It's very difficult. So. My purpose in diaspora is to hear other people's experiences and learn from it because unfortunately for me to learn from it for my family would, I don't know if I ever will be able to, but it would require a lot more in-depth research. So just to get a different aspect because my parents are very one-toned immigrant people, unfortunately. And I wanna hear from other people's experiences who are like me, who are, I just got here and I, I don't know and I want to learn and I want to be educated and I want to use my education to better our people and to better other people and to better educate people moving forward. Definitely excited to talk about um, the uh, ethnic racism with you and, and others and have that conversation moving forward. I feel like my purpose in the Black diaspora um, is to share my knowledge of safe black spaces um like i said i can be a little sensitive hypersensitive to all the the news and i mean i think we all are but like i i still haven't watched you know the george floyd video type of like i just can't i just can't you know what i mean so i feel like i i want to be around um let me give you an example like um smart funny and black um, Amanda so she created that I love the purpose that she created that um, you know because you can be smart you can be funny and you can be black and a lot of people don't think that that exists right all three can exist in the same space um, Jackie working at Boston while black it's very inspiring you know um, just watching how you navigate through that and um, 
the, what you guys uh, did a few weeks ago in Boston. Um, the Juneteenth, um, there's a second annual Juneteenth Rock the Block Festival in Tampa. Sorry, there's traffic behind me. Um, my family has had family reunions every year since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it's always a good turnout. Um, you know, I know some people that do not have family reunions and I didn't realize how blessed um, mm-hmm. I was to be a, my, for my mom's side of the family to be involved in that. Um, yeah, I just feel like I, I, I just have always been in a space where I'm not in a majority black community, like even growing up in, um, in, in Maryland, DC, you know, um, and, um, I felt a lot of my blackness when I would come back home to summer, um, summer vacations. And then when I moved down South, um, I just kind of just realized like I, I, I would much rather find safe black spaces because I just don't feel like that 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 they exist more now th- that the internet is here. But I, I just want to like make sure like it's it's rooted in um therapy and and we're just like education and yeah. So I my, I feel like my purpose is to share um those black safe spaces. That's my purpose. Thank you guys. Um, I know we haven't talked about it, but um, maybe we can, before we all log off, have a moment of silence for our brothers and sisters in Buffalo 